Hello and welcome to Making Media Now. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me today are filmmakers Tim O'Donnell and John Mercer from Pixella Films. Tim and John are co-producers and co-directors of a new documentary called Tougher Than a Tank. The film's executive producer is Casey Affleck. The film focuses on Noah Cass and Eddie Ryan, both Marines who sustained injuries while deployed in Iraq. While Noah's injuries are mostly invisible, Eddie was hit by two rounds in the head, rendering him immobile and with severe traumatic brain injury. In an attempt to relieve financial burdens and raise money for Eddie's recovery, Noah embarks on a 145-mile run from his hometown in Summers, Connecticut, to Eddie's in Lake George, New York. In turning to all his civilian training partners to assist with the run, Noah's journey exemplifies the need for community and reveals the emotional, physical, and financial struggles many veterans face today. Here's the trailer. Eddie was the first person that I really, I closely knew. I thought he was dead. It was in 2005 Sergeant Ryan suffered serious brain damage when he was shot twice in the head while serving in Iraq. I had a lot of guilt that nothing happened to me. Like, how was that fair? I always knew it was a couple hour drive and I could just never bring myself to do it. And I couldn't figure out why. And I was just sitting at work one day and I was like, I'm gonna run to Eddie's house. Anybody can set up a GoFundMe. Not anybody can walk out their front door and say, I'm going to see a brother I haven't seen in 12 years and I'm gonna run there and I'm gonna be there in two and a half days and I don't have a choice. Tougher Than a Tank is available on iTunes beginning August 3rd. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit www.filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. They really do make a difference. And now on to my conversation with Tim O'Donnell and John Mercer. Hello and welcome to Making Media Now. Joining me today are Tim O'Donnell and John Mercer from Pixella Films. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Michael. We really appreciate it. That's Tim, people. <laughs> this is the, this is the beauty of a podcast where I get to play translator for uh, folks who can't see the participants. But anyway, uh, hello, Tim. John. Hey, thanks for having us on. Good to be speaking with both of you. I'm going to um, brazenly introduce you both as a friend of the podcast or friends of the podcast. Tim actually joined us way back on episode number two, back when we were young, young and innocent. And, uh, now we're old podcast pros. Anyway, the um, the rationale behind uh, having uh, Tim and John on the podcast this week is to uh, talk about their 
uh, latest film called Tougher Than a Tank. And we actually may be joined uh, by one of the um, the participants in the film and one of the gentlemen who are uh, profiled uh, in the film. But, John, could you give us um, a synopsis of what Tougher Than a Tank is all about. Tougher Than a Tank is a story that encapsulates a three-day event uh, at the heart of the film. Uh, so we're joined by Noah Cass, a Marine veteran, PTSD survivor, who made ultra running a part of his recovery and transition back home. And throughout the process of the film, we see him take this journey from his home in Summers, Connecticut, all the way up to Lake George, New York, which is about 145 mile run. And uh, he's doing this in an effort to reconnect with someone that he served with, uh, another Marine by the name of Eddie Ryan. Uh, Eddie Ryan was really injured in a friendly fire incident in Iraq uh, and survived, uh, but with, you know, serious physical and mental injuries. Uh, and at this point in his life, you know, Noah's been doing pretty well on his transition. And this is kind of the first time that he's really ready to come to grips with meeting Eddie, the new Eddie, and just kind of facing what they both went through. And mm -hmm. he's using ultra running and in particular, this three day journey from his home to Eddie's home as a way of processing and trying to reconnect. And what was the time time period of uh, each of their deployments to Iraq. They both signed up post 9-11 and multiple tours, you know, early, early 2000s. And do you do you have an idea roughly of what, um, of when Eddie was um, was was injured? Uh, I do. I'm going to have to look, though. Can okay. I cheat? Or, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to, um, you know, get a, a time frame because. You know, it's so weird to say, but for so many people, the Iraq war now also feels like a long time ago, which is which is crazy. And, you know, when you think back to those years of 04, 05, 06, where it was just the levels of casualties were immense, you know, pretty much on a daily basis. Well, you know, I think that's that's an important characterization, Michael, because, you know, I, I think I mean, in fact, the Iraq war was was a long time ago uh, and certainly in, in people's memories. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's probably faded even further than that. And, you know, that that's kind of the point, I think, for for both those who served and then also for uh, civilians who were, weren't engaged in, in this conflict at all. Uh, you know, it, it's really that period of time feels like so long ago and yet people that were involved in it on, on all sides, you know, the injuries and, and the care that's required afterwards, it, it really remains. Um, so in, in Eddie's case, you know, where so much of his, no, no, sorry, Eddie's kind of in a place of like, he's stable in terms of his recovery, but it still kind of requires active upkeep if you want to think of it that way. So, mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the issues that, that he's facing uh, in terms of getting support from the VA uh, and trying to get the amount of therapy sessions he needs in order to kind of maintain where he is right now, uh, that was at jeopardy during the course of filming. So, and, you know, Noah sort of found out about this and was, was really upset about it. Um, so certainly there, there's a lot of ways to reconnect with someone. He, I think he felt like he physically kind of had to suffer and, and earn it. But additionally, uh, part of running this long distance was uh, making a statement about it trying to attack to attract a little bit of media coverage to this issue. The fact that, you know, while he's running Eddie yet again is, is facing, um, you know, restrictions on the amount of therapy and support that he's able to get, which means more is coming out of his family's pockets. And, um, you know, if, if he can't keep that up, his, his recovery kind of starts to decline a little bit. Of course. What do you guys know about um, how, 
how the nature of um, the relationship that uh, Eddie and Noah had while they were um, in Iraq together. I think they were, you know, folks like a lot of people that, you know, join the military, you know, you start to find common people or new connections, fresh connections that you otherwise wouldn't have. And it happens in sport. It happens in all these, you know, a lot of different ways that we connect. And I think from Noah's perspective, um, Eddie had that like just exact same humor, you know, where he was over the top, um, hilarious, but deep down he had that sort of intensity of work ethic and focus. And Noah is very much like that. He's this very poetic, deep, deep soul, old soul. And he can be funny and he can be hilarious. And then, you know, but he's the guy waking up at 3am to do a 20 mile run before he goes to work, you know? And so Eddie was the same way. And so they hit it off in machine gun school uh, together. And it just like one of those things where you just don't know where you're going to end up. So you could have, you know, an instant best friend and not see them for your, you know, four to 10 years of duty, uh, you know, with different engagements, uh, different Mm -hmm. tours. Um, in their case, they, they did, they were able to reconnect uh, a bunch of times and, and stay connected, um, during their service. Um, but you know, from, and that's part of the film is sort of unraveling their relationship because it's been 12 years since they've seen each other. Uh, it's also been, you know, like, like John said earlier, it's like a different version of Eddie. So like Noah has yet to meet the post injury Eddie. Um, so this is when the context you're giving the 12 years, this is the context of the film. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of back into a little bit of a timeline. Cause I think that's, that's helpful. So exactly. uh, both, both Noah and Eddie enlisted uh, post nine 11. Um, Eddie was a little bit younger. He had to wait until 2002 to enlist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was injured in 2005 during his third deployment, some history between Noah and Eddie. So both of them met, in machine gun training. So machine machine gun training is more of like secondary training you would get after basic. Um, so both of them actually met in this training program, but they never actually deployed, you know, for them, their, their relationship or sorry, they never deployed together, I should say. So their, their relationship is really, you know, at, at the onset of their service and they're both kind of in this new experience. They're both feeling called to enlist post nine 11, uh, and, and they're going to machine gun school together uh, and kind of bonding in, in those years. And then they kind of go away and they go on separate deployments. At the time that Eddie was injured, he was on his third deployment in 2005. I think the two had sort of stayed in touch. You know, one of the things that Noah mentions uh, in, the, in the film as well is, uh, you know, you, you hear about uh, when when vehicles or when people would get killed, right? You, you would know when there was a major incident, but if someone got hit and got injured, you didn't know. And he had heard something about Eddie's unit and he never really knew what the outcome was. And, you know, he, he got home, he kind of found out the extent of it, uh, but he really wasn't able to process it. So, um, you know, if we look at that's 2005 when, when Eddie gets injured, Noah's still actively deployed he gets home, he kind of goes through his own transition project. Guys, if I understand correctly, you guys found Noah somehow, and he was actually a subject of another film that you had made, correct? Yeah, we um, were lucky to be just in common circles, you know, and uh, we, I I heard about Noah and he actually, it's really funny, um, just recently posted the original 
Facebook message and uh, we're, we're friends on Facebook. And, uh, you know, this must have been um, about seven or eight years ago. And he said, I, I, he's in, he was finally in a place like he transitioned home. He had uh, challenges with drinking, um, you know, relationship problems, uh, anger, depression, you know, honestly, typical of a lot of folks coming back uh, from service. And he was finally in a place that he was settling, but he needed the next kind of mission. And so he, he, the post is really funny. It's something like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to do something creative, maybe make a film. And so I messaged him. And again, we're not like close friends at all, but I just sent him a note. And then he goes, I think I'm going to sign up for this 50 mile, like backwards run. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like He wasn't intentional about like, he wanted to do something creative. He wanted an outlet, you know? And I, I, I get that, you know, he was ready for that. Because once you're, you know, in the healing process of any trauma, it's like you can go through that phase, but there's the next step of what to do with all this uh, and continue to process it and continue to push further. Because if you pause, it's problematic, especially for a lot of folks coming back from service. So I was like, that's a great concept. And so I started filming with Noah and then me and John started following this, you know, event uh, and a week before the 50 mile race, he told me he had never run more than a marathon. In fact, he only ran one marathon and it was really interesting. That's the intensity of a Marine who, who says he's going to do something and, and does it. And so uh, pretty wild story. So it's a 22 minute um, short documentary called the last time I heard true silence. The title comes from Noah's ringing in his ears. It's a, a common thing. A lot of folks have, and uh, it's pretty there's there's spectrum and for him it was getting to the point where it's really interfering with his day-to-day you know he's married he has children uh you know that that can be pretty pretty challenging so he found ultra running as a way to cope uh and you know claims you know as he's running uh the the ringing goes away and obviously that ringing comes goes back to um, his deployment and you know some of the stuff he had to face and go through and so, yeah, you know, it was a funny process where, you know, me and John are making a variety of films, but, but there's no intention to, to necessarily make a, a second version of a story mm-hmm. or follow a character like, you know, five years later. But I think Noah maybe texted us, John, and was like, I'm going to go see my friend, Eddie, and I'm going to run 145 miles in three days. And I don't think there was much <laughs> question from me and John on whether or not to film. And I don't think the intention was to make a feature length documentary, but we knew we needed to cover it. We needed to to follow it because, you know, like in documentary world, uh, it, if something passes, it's too late, you know, and for this in particular, it felt immediate. We need to do it. So I think we had a couple months to get our shit together <laughs> and, and, and let's, let's go film, you know, uh, kind of uh, thing. And then we kind of, um, after that, realized the extent of this story and, and decided to double down and continue the project. As outsiders, essentially, when I say outsiders, I mean outsiders to this, both Noah and Eddie's immediate story and their immediate circumstance. And as storytellers, how did you guys kind of um, figure out and then, you know, maybe vet some assumptions that you guys had around what is really making Eddie run, you know, because the, the film is more than, um, this isn't a film about a guy training for a long race necessarily, right? This, this, this is a film of this, this run um, being uh, emblematic and symbolic, uh, uh, symbolic of, of an effort, 
So I'm curious how you arrive at almost the metaphorical implications of the story that you're trying to tell. And given that it's not your story, right, your personal story, how do you go about sort of vetting those assumptions with the two subjects in the film? Either of you can take that one. Michael, do you mean like vetting in terms of processing like what what someone believes or like processing what, what we believe? Both, actually, because because it does seem in the film that both Eddie and Noah would sort of have to sign on to any assumption that you're making around uh, internal drivers that uh, either, you know, each of them have. So with Noah, you know, working with Noah for the first time in, in 2014, uh, for the last time I heard True Silence, um, you know, the, the Noah is like such a dream subject because he just in his uh, part of his own process, he, he was kind of doing these audio journals and uh, he was driving a lot at the time for work and, and he would just just record and just talk to himself. So and, and he handed all of that over to us. And the other thing about Noah is he's he's very consistent in the ways that he talks about things and his motivation. I mean, we've we've worked with a lot of athletes in the past, you know, both Tim and I kind of have pursued different sports at different times as well. So I think we kind of understand a little bit about that mindset, certainly a training mindset. But, you know, his commitment to to running, Tim kind of brought me on to film with Noah as he was about to run the 50 miles. So I, I met him on, on race day for the first time. Before that, Noah had sent over his splits, like his race plan. So mile by mile, here's what my, my times are going to be throughout the course of the race. And like Tim and I had a conversation about it and I was like, well, wait a second. These splits are all the same. <laughs> it was like, you're, you're going to run 10 minute miles consistently for 50 miles in your first 50 miler. I was like, that, that sounds great. Like for scheduling purposes of when we're going to see him, but it's never going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what happened. And mind you too, that this isn't a typical run. It is literally trail run. Yeah. on the beach at times. Yep. It is in the, the woods. And then there's even rock faces. Like there's an elevation uh, uh, element where you're literally on rock. So um, for those non-runners out there, like that is the, the most challenging thing <laughs> you can do because you're not dealing with one thing. Um, you're dealing with a lot of different terrain. Yeah, it's, it's pretty technical running. So I, I, think, I think Noah's performance in that first 50 miler to me, that, that really stood out as not, I mean, it's a great physical feat, right? But yeah. I really think that um, part of Noah's personality and part of his training and experience as a Marine, like, and, and his, his motivation to really kind of, uh, not even motivation, his, his willingness to kind of pursue the, 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 the lows, right? To run for the lows, to kind of chase this feeling of like bottoming out and, and keeping, keeping on. I mean, I, I really didn't have to question anything about what he believes because he, he, he showed it, right? He said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, and, and he turned up and, and he did it. And, and that, that mental aspect in ultra running, I mean, that's a lot of times that's the difference between you finishing the race or not, maybe even more than the physical. So right away, that, that's our first you know, starting point for this film. Like, okay, we have someone who um, is very clear about what their intentions are here, even though like like Tim was saying, you know, his first, his first post about it was like, Hey, uh, I want to talk about this. And also I kind of want to set a crazy goal and try to do it. But then, then he backed it up. Right. So, um, that's a great starting place. And how much uh, time passed between that endeavor and his decision to set out on this 145 mile run from Summers, Connecticut to Lake George, New York. Sure. So production on, um, last time I heard your silence was 2014. 
and production for Tougher Than a Snake was 2017. And in that period of time, do do you guys have a sense of what the communication was between Noah and Eddie? Yeah, that, that's the interesting thing about, you know, kind of being involved in this process. So Noah really had kind of ultra running uh, for Noah. It was really grounding for him. I think it brought him back to himself and to his family. Additionally, when he was ready, uh, it also brought him back to a lot of friends who had been injured because I think that was like the last remaining piece. So he was able to face what had happened to him, what he had seen around him, but, you know, facing someone who had been injured that he knew that he cared about and that had lived through it in person, you know, it brings all of that stuff back for you. And then additionally, this other guilt about all these years that went by of you not being there for that person, or you're not even being deployed with that person. You're not being able to call them because you were, you know, too lost in your your own whatever when you got back home he really was just no it was really just at a, at a point where he was able to contact eddie um shortly before the run so you know he, he kind of he got eddie's parents number at home and, and he cold called them and he was like talked to eddie's mom and it was like hey this is who i am you know i served with your son maybe you know my name maybe you don't and you know she kind of had to vet him right because they they get calls like eddie's sure. stories now yeah. um and, uh, I think shortly after that, you know, he, he went up and, and saw Eddie for the first time. Um, but they, they were really not talking about like a significant amount of reconnection time until the run, the run was really the big moment. And a lot of their communication was happening, you know, over the phone. Um, even at that point, just, just because Noah was a busy guy and, and, you know, Eddie's not fully able. So the meeting in person, you know, it takes some effort. So, yeah, I mean, what, what you're able to watch in the film you know, them reconnecting at the end of the race and then being able to spend time with Eddie uh, and then going back the following year to kind of, you know, have another goal for Eddie to work towards, right. Of them all getting out and rejoining. Those are, those are really fresh for both of them. That, that really is like the reconnection moment for them. Not a lot of time have been spent, you know, back together before we, we were able to go and film. Do you have a sense of how Noah was able to uh, communicate the objective to Eddie and his family? Like, I'm going to I'm going to make this 145 uh, mile run because it's multipurpose. I think at the top level, it's um, over the years seeing that, you know, this guy. I mean, so Eddie, just to back up a little bit, too, Eddie was featured in an HBO documentary called The Live Day. Pretty big, pretty big film. And, you know, even before that, I mean, Eddie's story is a big story. You know, they you'll see it in the film where, you know, dad takes this down in the basement and it's a big space. And the entire top row, they built shelves and these are letters from random people. His story isn't some unheard story. It's it's pretty it's pretty known. You know, lots of people reached out, lots of support from the community. But yet he still has to fight for VA approved therapy. And the process is really like you hear about it and you just think, how is this happening to, to anyone, let alone a veteran who was gravely wounded and it's very kind of popular story. Um, so, you know, kind of tells you like the, the gamut of, of what's going on. So, you know, over the years hearing that Eddie is losing therapies each week and the process and, you know, parents are going out of pocket uh, and it's hard anyways. Like it's, there's so many other challenges. So that should be the easy one, right? Let me ask you this. Uh, just give our listeners a sense of how incapacitated or, um, you know, the, the physical challenges that Eddie is still dealing with. Eddie um, survived a traumatic brain injury, severely wounded, multiple surgeries, you know, was pronounced dead multiple times. Nobody thought he was 
going to come back at all. The fact that, you know, he survived that initial surgeries uh, was surprising. Him coming out of a coma after months was, was surprising, you know? And so what's wild about Eddie is he's always made progress over a decade long injury. He's continues to make progress. So currently he's in a wheelchair. Uh, he has, um, the ability to move uh, his arms, um, his left arm much more than his right. And so, you know, he, he can move his body uh, in t- terms of cognition. His, he's delayed in terms of conversation. So, so it's sort of interesting, you know, the, the traumatic brain injury community, it, it's a wide range. And, and for Eddie, even though his conversation is delayed at times, or it might be minimally spoke, or if he's out in a crowd, he gets kind of overwhelmed because it's a lot of sensory input. Sure. Yeah. He is so sharp and throughout the course of filming, uh, he all had our little, little jokes with us and he would hit you with a joke right away and a smirk. And so it it was interesting because conversationally, sometimes he's delayed, but man, he's so there. And, and that's the common thing is that Eddie was still Eddie, that, that early, you know, intense, hilarious, um, person that, that Noah met in machine gun school is actually still it survived, you know, that's there. That's a piece of Eddie. I think with Noah seeing over the years of therapies falling off, I think the run and the communication to, you know, Eddie's family was, I really, really want to do something to raise awareness, you know, over a decade after you've been injured because this story can't die. You know, there's been moments where he gets some attention and there's some raise, you know, fundraising and things change, but then years go by. So I think that was the initial thing um, that, that Noah was really trying to communicate. Yeah. One element that I found really compelling about the film um, was the fact that uh, Eddie's dad's a former Marine also. This is not explicitly communicated and perhaps I was just intuiting this, but I got this sense where, you know, here's a here's a man who's a Marine. He seemingly was very proud of his service as a Marine, very patriotic. His son is influenced by this. In the aftermath of 9-11, he decides he's going to uh, perform his patriotic patriotic duty and become a Marine. In the aftermath of uh, of being severely injured with, you know, um, lifelong implications, there does seem to be this feeling. Thank you for your service. But the struggles still remain. Did you guys get any sense from either Noah, Eddie, or or Eddie's dad even of them questioning like, hey, what happened to this covenant? What happened to this this deal? You know, I, I think what's interesting and is common, a variety of people that we've worked with who have served and, and have been injured. I, I think that there is there is an expectation that something should be done, especially for those who are injured. Um, that's the right thing to do. And, and fighting the VA is frustrating and it's emotionally draining at, at best. But I, I also feel like the, the reasons that people serve, they're different from that expectation of what's going to happen to you when you get back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I say that for, for Eddie, for sure. And, and also for Chris, for Eddie's father, Chris enlisted post Vietnam. So you know, he certainly was aware of the the ways in which veterans are treated when they come back, mm-hmm. even the ways in which people who are actively serving in conflicts, which are not popularly accepted back home, and yet we're still engaged with them, the ways in which those people are treated. So I, I feel like more than the sense of like, hey, something should be done. 
there's kind of this equally powerful force of like, well, this is, this is the thing that we should do and being called to do that. Even if the, even if that results in injury or loss of life, it's equally as powerful alongside that. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely disgusting to ask people to, to serve and then to not be able to back that up, uh, with healthcare and, you know, social services and, um, psychological support when, when people come back, Mm -hmm. um, you know, additionally for, I think for people like Eddie and and for Chris and for Noah, even the, the call to serve the time with which you, you feel compelled to do that. And they're kind of going into that knowing what the odds are and, and this is still the choice that they're making. So there's an interesting kind of balance between those two things. And with the Ryan's family, the Ryan family too, I mean, they, they talk pretty openly about uh, not having any regrets about not necessarily what happened to Eddie, but the fact that Eddie enlisted. There's, there's no regret there at all. And that can be a really challenging thing to face, I think, in person. Neither of you uh, have served in the military and, and you've made um, at least two films, uh, actually three films that I'm aware of, probably maybe more, wherein military personnel, either active or former military personnel, are protagonists. Um, tell me about the process of winning credibility, winning trust, winning confidence. Uh, confidentiality with these men, men and women too. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's the kind of community that, you know, once you're, once you're in, you're in, but I'll, I'll let Tim talk about that process. A little yeah. Bit what more. allows you to, yeah. to get in? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, the military community is, is a tight knit community. Right. And, uh, and they have been portrayed, um, on various ends of, in the media. So for an outsider, for a civilian to have to gain trust and to feel like you're, you're a part of that community and you're welcomed, um, is a process. And so we were very lucky that, you know, I, I happened to meet a veteran, um, well over 10 years ago, um, Nick Palmashano, who's who's from Massachusetts. He's a veteran. He's the producer of this film too. And so I think with Nick, my connection besides Massachusetts, both being from Mass, was wrestling. And I wrestled in high school and college and I coached for a while. And I think it just, the conversation, the um, camaraderie kind of went to sport. And what's neat about a lot of military folks is there is a process of training um, hand-to-hand combat, a lot of that kind of falls back to wrestling. And so there is a little bit of respect in, in terms of sport, I think more than others, but, um, I, you know, it, it's, you know, I'll never compare myself to Noah, but just sort of backing it up, right. Like saying, you're going to do something and do it. And so we had uh, a week where I was able to wake up at 3am and, and do X and Y and, you know, stay out late and do all things and, and just, just prove it. Don't say you're going to do this thing, just do it. And then go home and finish the film that you're, you're making. So doing all that, I think with Nick, it built a little bit of trust. I think the thing with Nick too, is at the time he, he started a, a, the first ever apparel t-shirt company called Ranger Up. And you think, okay, t-shirts, uh, whatever, but you know, for the military community it became a conduit the community. And so he really created this community and he became a military sort of superstar have over 1 million followers on social. He's made a lot of amazing things. And, you know, he left a a pretty high paying job at John Deere, has a background at Duke Business School. So you hear t-shirts and um, you might think one thing or the other, but as you know, it's a, it's, it's a community. Uh, So he was, he was seeking that, but on the side, he's, he's always wanted to make films. And so he, he's very creative man, you know, he, he has a little bit of background. And so I think 
it was just perfect timing. And so that started the relationship. I was lucky to make videos for Ranger Up on a commercial side. And then as the years went on, we started to do these mini docs. So um, flew out to Texas and made uh, a few films uh, about Tim Kennedy, who's a former UFC fighter and former special forces. And things just kept happening where we would keep making films together. And the biggest one, the biggest change, I think, for, for that sort of level was a film called Not a War Story that's you know available on Amazon and iTunes. And that film um, followed Nick's endeavor to make the first ever veteran-produced Hollywood film where you know William Shatner, Sean Astin, Danny Trejo are, are featured, but the majority of the cast is veterans. And so the, the behind-the-scenes story of Not a War Story is a documentary following a Hollywood film being made little yeah. meta. Uh, and I think, you know, um, through that process, I kept meeting folks in the community. Um, me and John kept having these interactions where, you know, just getting time with somebody and, you know, and not, not hearing about somebody, but meeting them and seeing the path of, of what we've done, what we've been able to accomplish with Nick, with other veterans, uh, making films, telling stories in an accurate way, telling stories, hopefully in an honest way. Um, in a passion way where, you know, a lot of these stories are independently produced. So, um, you know, the intention has to be, uh, you really want to make this film because there's a lot of obstacles when, when making independent films. Um, so I, I think, you know, honestly, it's just, it, it's been time with the community and then, um, proving what, what you're, what you're saying, backing up with, you know, action. So, yeah. And uh, there's it's been a great journey. One interesting thread through all of these films and, you know, particularly with Tougher Than a Tank, there's this aspect where there is a a physical manifestation of a commitment to something. So Noah's not just talking about what he thinks should be done for Eddie. He's going to do it. He's there's the physical commitment. There's, you know, it's visceral. Um, And. Tell me about the relationship between kind of athleticism and commitment to a to a goal um, that you that you learned about on the part of these folks in making this film. I think for both Noah and Eddie, I think commitment is the right word. I also feel like the you know, the attributes of an athlete in training, you know, working towards goals, dealing with setbacks working towards consistency, those kinds of things, uh, and, and the support that you need around them for both of those people, they're, they're really tied to recovery. And I think for Noah, and, um, I think for a lot of people, you know, being physically active allows you to be more present, um, in a lot of ways. And, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think for him, I think that connection is really fundamental, even if he's not running, even if Mm -hmm. he's choosing to, you know, um, lift weights or do something else. I think having, having something to work towards, um, that's physical. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you're working towards something emotionally or processing something emotionally, it's hard to see milestones, but if you also have a physical component and something to kind of keep you on task and a reminder, like, Hey, you know, like you, you did a little bit better this week or, or even like, you know what, this week was rough and you didn't move at all. And maybe there's some other things going on you, you want to consider. Yeah. I, I sort of feel like that's, that maybe not to speak for Noah, but knowing a little bit more about Noah, having worked with him since 2014, I think that kind of represents his perspective on it. So you guys each work as uh, you're credited as co-producers, co-directors on this film, and you have an executive producer who I'm sure a lot of people are aware of. His name is Casey Affleck. Tell me about how 
uh, this film came to the attention of Casey Affleck and and what that means for the film? Yeah, you know, we're we're lucky that Casey jumped onto this project. You know, it, it obviously helps elevate the message. You know, I mean, part of making this film is highlighting Noah and Eddie, right? And getting folks to hear about their story and, you know, get into their world. And, you know, as we all know, just a little bit of interaction and insight can, can go a long way for a lot of folks who might, might otherwise not have that. So, you know, part of our mission of telling stories is, is a lot of that, you know, and, you know, Casey's obviously can help quite a bit because, you know, his, his obviously is a well-known, you know, figure in the entertainment community, for Casey, you know, he's been um, quietly advocating for veterans for, for a while now. And he's been working with different organizations. Um, he, you know, for the last couple of years has uh, worked a lot with Nick on helping, you know, films tell accurate stories uh, about veterans and also get it in the, the seats uh, of where, you know, veterans are going to be able to see this film. Mm-hmm. And so it was the perfect storm of, you know, being able to get, you know, Casey involved and, you know, he really loves um, Eddie and Noah's story. The timing was, was wonderful that, you know, he jumped on and is going to help promote the film. The film's coming out uh, August 3rd. It's going to be available on, you know, VOD, iTunes, Amazon. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're excited to get this film out there after working on it for over four years. You guys together have an interesting story in terms of how uh, Pixella Films uh, came into the world. Uh, John, tell me a little bit about the relationship between you and Tim. It, it, it goes back a minute. It's true. Yeah, it's a pretty rare connection, I think, and, and, and always both on, on the business side and certainly on the creative side. So, yeah, I, I mean, Tim and I have known each other since middle school. Uh, we, we played basketball together. You know, went to high school together, and it's it's funny because I I think you know think about the group of friends back then. Everyone kind of goes off to college, and you know a lot of people sort of do their own thing. And Tim and I met all these years later after graduation. Every once in a while, I, I would see him see him out at a show or something in Boston. You know, we kind of reconnected one night over some live music, and um, I, I had known that uh, Tim's Tim's father had you know had had a brain injury, and I also knew a little bit that you know Tim was kind of starting to film around this project. So he and I talked a lot about it that night, and then we kind of got together because he was starting this process of filming with his father and with his family for the film that would become the house I lived in, which is ten years in the making and, and about mm-hmm. to come out later this year as well. It had been going through his MFA. Uh, starting to pursue filmmaking as more of a career and, and kind of needed a little bit of, little bit of guidance. And similarly, I, I had been working as an editor for quite some time and, you know, was really, um, really passionate about trying to get myself out there as a director and, and a producer. So we, we kind of had complementary skills. We had this past history uh, and this trust, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're, grew up together from the same hometown, you know, the same people. There's, there's kind of this unspoken, uh, I don't know, trust isn't even the right word for it, but there's kind of like creatively when, when we're shooting stuff, like I know exactly what he's going to (laughs) do. Can you guys define, can you define what makes a Pixella film? You know, if I, if I look at the, the roster of the films that you have produced, I, I think I see some common threads, but I'm curious as to the nature of stories that appeal to each of you individually and collectively, and then 
how you arrive at a sense of where's the where's the backbone of this story? What's the you know, what's where's where's the the energy that's going to move this story forward? And and frankly, you know, given the nature of the time investment of the many of the films that you guys make, how do you arrive at that common affirmative decision that, yes, this is worth the investment of of um, uh, blood, sweat and tears? I think the decision to move ahead with any given project is is usually the easy one. Uh, I think because there's a, there's a real kind of gut check of like, does this feel good? Is the timing of it good? You know, does this sit in, in alignment with other things that we have created or are interested in making? I think what defines Pixella Films is really our catalog of work within different marginalized communities. I am really proud of the way that we're able to drop into a place that maybe we're not from you know, just kind of ask honest questions um, and also be able to kind of sit there and and observe and, and to not really interfere or, uh, you know, express an outside point of view. So, mm-hmm. you know, working working within marginalized communities and then the fact that these stories are from a particular community, they have support around them. Uh, maybe there's an issue or a cause that's sort of in need of attention. And then also kind of looking back through, you know, past work, there there is this thread of um, some kind of athletics or pursuit of sport in there as well. And for me, that that's kind of like not the most confusing component that exists there, but it certainly is a thing where like uh, it, it started to happen. And then um, there were more films that kind of fit that style. And here we are all these years later. And, and that's, that's did, a lot of, did that feel like a conscious decision? Because the athleticism does feel does serve uh, as an apt metaphor quite often. It does. Yeah. I, I don't think it was conscious, though, I, to be honest. Like, I think so. We we were working with Noah and on the last time I heard True Silence, uh, even before we, we met Bill Keese and her family for Life Without Basketball. To be totally honest, I mean, when, when we first heard about what was happening with Bill Keese, the interest wasn't basketball. Right. And I similarly with Noah, too. I mean, Noah's an ultra runner, but you know, that's not what we're here to talk about. And we've done a couple of cycling projects now too. And, you know, like cycling isn't the thing that we're talking about. There's something else, but it, it certainly is. It's a nice vessel to kind of move things along. Yeah. And the similar- athleticism is a way into the story. It is for sure. And similar to how we were talking about recovery, you know, um, I think, I think it's helpful if you kind of have this other kind of guideposts along, uh, along the narrative, even of like, okay, like, progress has been made or, or it hasn't. And then let, let's talk about some other things that are around that and, and why or why not uh, those things are happening as well. Right. So what, what else is, what else is the barrier here or what's going well and who are the people around you that are kind of enabling that those all serve narrative as well as they do kind of a, a, an individual's progression towards any sport or athletic pursuit. Well, as a um, filmmakers collaborative representative. Uh, We're very pleased that Pixella Films is part of the Filmmakers Collaborative community. And I want to thank you guys for your time talking to us about Tougher Than a Tank, which is going to be available uh, beginning August 3rd, video on demand. And is it all major streamers pretty much, Tim, or uh, some select ones? You mentioned them a couple couple minutes back. Just uh, remind me of those, please. Yeah, all major platforms, you know, um, iTunes, Amazon, uh, pretty much anything you can think of, you know, and, and we're really proud and excited to, to share this film. And, you know, we appreciate the time to, to talk about it. It's so much fun to think back on the journey of four years and all the things that took to make this film. 
and the subjects. And it's, it's just, I know the Ryans and I know Noah and his family, they're all very proud and excited to, to get it out there. Yeah. It's such a compelling film. It's such a moving piece and uh, man, it works on so many levels. And I, uh, I really hope you get the audience that this, this film deserves and the awareness that you both spoke of earlier, uh, the awareness of the continual sacrifice that, that veterans make and, and continue to make even, even when they're not actively serving. So Tim O'Donnell and John Mercer, thank you again for, for joining me today. And, um, we look forward to seeing what is coming up next from Pixella Films. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. 